0: Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, Contributing Editor for Daily Coast Elections.
1: And I'm David Neer, Political Director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts.
0: We've got a lot to cover in today's episode, so what are we going to be talking about?
1: We are going to be talking about a shock resignation on New York's top court that could send that court in a much more progressive direction. We are also previewing some key primaries in Maryland. We are going to be revisiting an important ballot measure about abortion rights in Michigan. And we are going to discuss the fallout from Boris Johnson's resignation as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. After that, we are going to be talking with Jason Bressler, a Democratic consultant who in 2018 was the political director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the year that the party won back the majority in the House in a huge wave election. We've got a lot to talk about, so please join us for the whole thing.
0: This week, we got
1: some really surprising news from New York. What's going on there, Nir? So we have talked a lot about the importance of elections for state supreme courts on the down ballot. But it's also really important to remember that in a majority of states, judges on each state's top court get there first by being appointed by the governor. And that brings us to a very shocking development in New York this week. The chief judge of New York's highest court, which is not called the state Supreme Court, it's called the Court of Appeals. The chief judge, Janet Fiore, abruptly announced that she would resign at the end of August, even though she had three and a half years left on her term. And at the time, she offered no explanation that made any sense at all for her departure. But shortly afterwards, Law 360 reported that Fiore was under investigation for interfering with a disciplinary proceeding against the president of the New York State Court Officers Association. It's clear that this guy hates Fiore and vice versa, but it was sort of a really strange thing for her to metal in? And also, is that really the only reason why she was resigning? In any event, she's going to be gone. And that is, in fact, great news for progressives. De Fiore is a former Republican who switched to the Democratic Party in 2007, but more importantly, she was an appointee of Andrew Cuomo. And Cuomo, during his long tenure before his resignation in Disgrace, wound up appointing every single member, all seven members of the New York Court of Appeals. And many of his picks, including De Fiore, were quite conservative. De Fiore formed a majority that regularly ruled against tenants' rights, against environmental protections, against victims of police brutality. She even joined an opinion that required defendants to pay for their own electronic monitoring devices. But worst of all was an opinion she was part of earlier this year. It was a four-judge majority that ruled that New York's legislature didn't have the power to draw new maps for Congress and for the state legislature, even though the state's redistricting commission completely failed in its job, and instead De Fiore and her conservative colleagues on the court allowed a Republican judge in a small upstate community to draw all of the state's districts for Congress and for the state Senate. It was a total debacle. The opinion made no sense at all. The legal reasoning was completely torturous, and it seemed pretty evident that this conservative majority simply wanted to stick it to Democrats but it's not just De Fiore and the court and Cuomo that deserves the blame. The state Senate confirmed every single one of Cuomo's picks, and two of those picks were nominated by Cuomo after Democrats took back the chamber in 2018. Progressives actually begged Senate Democrats to reject Madeline Singas, who was a very tough-on-crime, anti-reform prosecutor, and she was confirmed anyway, along with Anthony Conataro, and both of them joined with Fiore and another Cuomo pick, Michael Garcia, in that redistricting ruling. So there was really no excuse for Democrats, especially self-styled progressives, to go along with these disastrous picks that Cuomo kept putting forth. Progressives now are calling on Governor Kathy Hochul to pick someone much, much better than Di Fiore. If the person Hochul puts forward isn't an acceptable choice for progressives, then Democrats in the state Senate need to reject that person. They need to show spine that they didn't show toward Cuomo. And simply by showing spine now in advance, that will help push Hochul in the right direction. But I mention all this because obviously Di Fiore had a huge impact on New York's elections this year, but even though Top court judges in New York, you don't get to vote for them. And honestly, that's probably a good thing. I think judicial elections are a bad idea. It's really important to remember just how important elections for governor are Because just because you elect a Democrat, like Cuomo, doesn't mean you're going to get good justices on your court. And also in states where you have the chance to flip a Republican-held governorship, getting a Democrat in there could lead to huge changes on the state's top courts there. So always just keep in mind who is doing the appointing. It is so, so important.
0: The question, of course, for me is how can we convince a Republican Supreme Court justice to do the same and resign in the face of controversy? Because that would be great. I just want to take this whole plan and move it up to the national level. So we'll see if we can do that somehow. So July is a relatively light month in primary season, not nearly as busy as June or or August. But we do have one upcoming state election in Maryland, whose election was actually originally supposed to be June 28th, but was postponed to July 19th due to the court delaying the election for redistricting reasons. But it's going to turn out the results might take even longer than July 19th because Maryland regulations prevent election workers from even starting to count mail-in ballots until the Thursday after the election. So two days after election day is when mail-in ballots can start being counted. And of course, like in many states, those have become an increasingly high percentage of the votes cast for, for elections. This is similar to things that we've seen in other states in the recent past that have created these long delays in election results. And in fact, the Maryland legislature actually tried to fix this issue and allow early counting of Maryland votes so that we wouldn't have this exact problem. But of course, moderate, quote unquote, GOP Governor Larry Hogan vetoed it because the bill didn't include super unnecessary election security measures that would you know, provide the appearance of increased election security, not that he even had any reason to be concerned about Maryland elections. He just didn't like the appearance of lack of election security, as we
1: hear over and over again from Republicans. And what they really should do in this case is not release any results until the mail ballots are being counted because releasing only half the results on Tuesday night is going to be absurdly misleading. But then, of course, if they held on to the results for two days, that would just lead to even more conspiracy theories. This is a total mess. It's totally unacceptable. And Hogan is simply echoing Trumpist talking points for his BS reasons for vetoing the bill to fix this.
0: Exactly. And lots of states are good at counting votes on election night. Florida, a state that's been run by Republicans for a while, counts very quickly, counts their mail-in votes, their early votes, their election day votes very quickly. This is doable if only Republicans actually wanted to get the votes counted on election night, but they don't care to prioritize that. But anyway, I did want to go through a few of the key primary races that are going to be happening next week, starting with the Maryland governor's race, where Larry Hogan is termed out. So on the Republican side, we've got Trumpist State Delegate Dan Cox versus Kelly Schultz, who is the Hogan pick. He's endorsed her, and she also served as both Secretary of Commerce and Secretary of Labor at different times under Hogan. So it's very much sort of a Maryland establishment type pick who could potentially be competitive versus a Trumpist and Cox who will, you know, if he wins, would almost certainly get destroyed by whoever the Democratic nominee is. On the Democratic side, we've got a lot of candidates who have jumped in. Of course, it's seen as a prime pickup opportunity for Democrats in Maryland. So there was a lot of interest. We've got former U.S. Labor Secretary Tom Perez. We've got Maryland Comptroller Peter Franchot. We've got former Maryland Attorney General Doug Gansler. We've got former CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation and author Wes Moore. And then finally, we've got former U.S. Secretary of Education John King Jr. So that's a lot, but we're going to focus on three of them. Franchot has been leading most of the polls. He's the one who's a current statewide elected official, but he's only in the 20s in most of the polling and both Moore and Perez are both within striking distance. So it's seen as, you know, a good chance that one of those can come up and overtake him with Franchot already having such good name recognition. Perez notably has support of the Maryland AFL-CIO, which is, you know, a state labor organization. He was endorsed by the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun. And Democratic primaries are really the place where newspaper endorsements can still matter, where, you know, a lot of college educated voters are, are still reading those papers and valuing what's in the opinion section. So those are things that, that really matter in a race like the in a Maryland Democratic primary. But then Wes Moore also has some big backing. He's got the backing of House Majority Leader Stinny Hoyer, who, of course, is from Maryland, and Oprah Winfrey, which is, of course, a huge name that, that pretty much everybody knows. So he's got some big backing as well. So, you know, it's definitely would not be a shocker to see any of those three candidates come out of the primary victorious next week or whenever we find out the result. And then we've got another primary on the Democratic side for another statewide office, the open attorney general seat. That's between Congressman Anthony Brown versus former District Court Judge Katie O'Malley, who is probably better known as former Maryland First Lady Katie O'Malley, who's, of course, the wife of former Governor Martin O'Malley. And in a fun fact, Brown was O'Malley's lieutenant governor during the eight years in which he served as governor. So there were two people who were both in that administration for, for eight years who I'm sure know each other quite well. But it has been at times contentious. O'Malley has gone after Brown's lack of trial court experience, while Brown has basically criticized in return the idea that the attorney general is about trial court experience and not the other many issues that the attorney general would face you know, while in office.
1: One other fun fact I have to jump in here with is that the longest streak of failure in seeking a statewide office in the entire country is for Maryland's attorney general post. The last time Republicans won this job was in 1918, 104 years ago.
0: <laughs> well, wow, that is some futility and, and let's hope it keeps going. And then lastly, we've got the Democratic primary in Maryland's fourth district, which is a district in the D.C. suburbs that's safely blue. It's actually the one that Brown is vacating to run for attorney general. And there we've got former Congresswoman Donna Edwards going up against former Maryland State's attorney, Glenn Ivey in a race that's attracted a lot of outside attention. So we'll see how that turns out next Tuesday.
1: I want to return briefly to a topic we discussed on last week's episode. In Michigan, we mentioned that organizers were working to put an amendment on the ballot that would affirmatively enshrine the right to an abortion in the state constitution. Well, they submitted signatures this week. In fact, they turned in more than 753,000 signatures which set a new record in the state for the most signatures ever submitted to get a measure on the ballot. It's more than 300,000 signatures than required by law. It represents a little bit more than 10% of all registered voters. Obviously, there is a ton of work that needs to be done to make sure this actually passes and becomes law. Uh, Conservative forces are going to fight tooth and nail to stop this. But the fact that organizers were able to collect and turn in a record-smashing number of signatures is a rare bit of positive news in the fight for abortion rights. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And I also had something to follow up with from our discussion last week in the United Kingdom, where Boris Johnson was facing what seemed to be his final curtain. And it was indeed, as he resigned last week, triggering a leadership contest for the Conservative Party, the winner of which will become prime minister despite not facing the voters for up to two and a half years, which is the maximum length until the next election could be called. So in the way that this works is Tory MPs vote for candidates with the lowest candidate being eliminated until only two candidates for prime minister are left. And then those two go before the Conservative Party membership, which is about 100,000 people. And then those two, those people will vote. And the winner of that will become the leader of the Conservative Party and by default, then the prime minister. Former Chancellor Rishi Shunek, who was one of the cabinet ministers who resigned, which led to Johnson eventually stepping down, is leading among MPs and is expected to make the final two, with then two other candidates sort of competing to get into that second place spot, one of which is Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, where a lot of Johnson's support has gone and is seen as the more right-wing candidate. And then the other potential candidate is Trade Secretary Penny Morton, who previously served as defense minister under Theresa May. So those who are competing for the spot, probably alongside Sunak, who will then go to the party membership.
1: Beard, in the UK, when replacements take over as prime minister under circumstances like these, do they typically last out the remainder of the term or is there a possibility of an earlier election?
0: There's certainly a possibility. We saw that most recently with both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, who called early elections after taking over from their predecessors when they felt that the time was right. Obviously, in Johnson's case, that worked out, and he won a large majority. In May's case, it did not work out as she lost a large polling lead and nearly lost the leadership of the country. But I think that there's a good chance that this parliament will see things out because the Tories currently have a big majority and they're currently trailing quite badly. And given May's, bad experience with a big lead, you would have to be very confident with a very good lead to want to call an early election, knowing what the risks are, rather than serve out, you know, two and a half years and hope that that's a good time when you have to go to the public. So it's certainly possible and you'll have to see how, how things work out. But with a, the sizable majority that the Tories currently have, I would expect them to keep the parliament going as long as possible.
1: Well, that's it for our weekly hits. Coming up after the break, we will be chatting with Jason Bressler, who is a former political director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the official party arm responsible for protecting and winning majorities in the House. Please stay with us. We are joined today on the down ballot by Jason Bressler, who is the former political director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, a.k.a. the DCCC, and is currently a partner at the Strategy Group, a consulting firm. Jason, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it.
1: So we would love to hear from you at the start about how you got involved in the world of democratic campaigns and elections, and in particular, how you worked your way up to the role of political director at the D-Trip in 2018, which of course was a seminal year for the committee and the party.
2: Well, it's always a fun question, you know, and I wish I had a really good answer for this, like I was inspired by a certain candidate or or, you know, met somebody who dra- got me into this and I couldn't say no, but the reality was I was fresh out of college, um just moved back from I didn't know what I was going to do after college and I moved to Madrid to teach English for a year and I figured at some point I had to move back and my good friend's mom was was running for Congress in Arizona and it was a job and I went out there and I was really, really lucky to have some really phenomenal staff on that team that I learned from and, you know, really gathered up as much as I could. And, you know, and we, um, so I, it was in Arizona, Northern Arizona. For those of you who don't know, it was against, I mean, those you don't know the district, it was in Northern, Northern Arizona. It's basically the center of the district. It's Flagstaff, Arizona. And it's one of the largest content, non-full state. At the time, it was the largest non-full state district in the country, meaning, not a, not as big as Alaska or Montana, but if it was not a whole state, it was the biggest by land size in the country. So, from end to end, it sometimes took twelve hours. It could take twelve hours to get across through Navajo Nation and and various things like that. So, I like to say we won. We lost the battle, but we won the war up there. We, you know, we lost to Rick Renzi by seven points. My candidate's name was Ellen Simon, but uh, our research there led to. Rick Renzi being indicted, his office being raided by the FBI, and eventual his jail sentence for an illegal land swap that he was in jail for until President Trump pardoned him on his last day of office in 2021. So we, you know, it was bittersweet on election day, but ultimately brought a lot of joy (laughs) down the line. And then after that, I did a couple special elections for the DCCC in Massachusetts uh, for Nikki Songhus and one in Ohio for Robin Wyrock before ending up on, on Judy Fader in 2008. I, like to, I don't like to tell people, but the reality is if you find another operative that lost election days in 2006 and 2008, I'd love to meet them because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm the only one. Um, and then from there in 2010, I managed Ron Klein in Southern Florida against Alan West. Alan West, as, as many folks here know, is, is an incredibly easy politician to loathe. Um, and he's become an even bigger character of himself over the last, you know, ten years. But I got to be honest; I learned more on that race than any other race I've done uh, that I've managed in the past. You know, West probably should have been in an insane asylum, but the reality was he he had a he had something that voters really gravitated to in 2010, and the reality was he had some un- unquestionable authenticity. I remember we had a we had a fundraiser. Where President Obama came down to help Ron Klein fundraise and it was held at this beautiful house. It was Alonzo Morning's house who played for the Miami Heat in, in Coral Gables. And, you know, the bottom the, the bottom line price to get in was, was multiple thousands of dollars. And at the same time, Alan West had a pancake breakfast or dinner, whatever the case may be, for five dollars. And I could tell you it it, it You know, it it really pissed me off, but it was certainly a learning experience to take with me, uh, which I did in 2012. In 2012, after I started on a few races that, you know, kind of fizzled after redistricting because we were in a post-redistricting cycle, I ended up in southern Illinois where it was an open seat for Jerry Costello, who was retiring from Congress. um, And we were running against Jason Plummer, who ran statewide in 2010 as lieutenant governor. Ultimately lost, but it was a self-funder um, because his dad owned some of the his dad owned a chain of lumber yards all across southern Illinois. Has his name was was well known throughout the district, and like I said, he had the ability to self fund. So we, Bill Enyart was retiring for, as the adjutant general of the Illinois National Guard on the day before the absolute deadline to get his name in after the in, after the uh, current nominee. And this is sorry, this is really complicated. Brad Harriman had to drop out because of uh, illness. So Bill gets in, I drop on the same day I arrive, Bill and you're on the same day I arrive and we're a million dollars in the hole and a year behind the, a year behind our competition. Um, We pulled and we started off the race about eight points behind. Um, But, but the reality was we had, you know, that's sort of, I'll talk more about what DCCC does for races, but that, that to me is sort of DCCC at its best between myself and what DCCC can do when they when they do their best. Like I said, we were starting a campaign from fresh in June of the on year against a well known uh against a well known, well funded uh challenger in an open seat that we had a lot of catch up to do. But the DCCC we we all sort of moved in there together. I stayed longer, but, but we all sort of moved in together to launch Bill. And then um, you know, four months later we 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 run that race and one of the things I took from Alan West, and, and happy to do it, was uh, Speaker Boehner came in town for a fundraiser for Jason Plummer, and they stayed at the only—I uh, don't know how you would even call it—but the, the the only uh, exclusive hotel in all of Southern Illinois they were at. <laughs> and, and, and while they were there, we had a uh, we had a we had a campaign breakfast for we had a, we had a pancake senior breakfast for. Seniors who were who were facing cuts from the Ryan uh, from the Ryan healthcare plan from Medicare from Medicare cuts in the Ryan healthcare plan. So the reality was secret, or the uh, the they couldn't the the both. But it ran on both St. Louis News and in the St. Louis Dispatch. And because they couldn't go inside the event, it was a picture and story of my candidate shaking you know older voters' hands and talking about the Ryan tax cuts, which our opponent was in favor of and, uh, and John Boehner and, um, and Jason Plummer getting into limos outside of this exclusive hotel in Southern Illinois. So Alan West may have gotten me in 2010, but I did take something with me to, to, to help bury our next person later on. I love it. And then, uh, after that, I was his chief of staff. for I lasted all of about six months on Capitol Hill. And before realizing it just wasn't for me. And I went on to, I joined a, a consulting firm for a little bit and then worked as a, as an advisor for the DCCC in in Illinois in, in two thousand fourteen, which was, you know, a tough cycle. And then in two thousand sixteen I joined the DCCC as a as a as a Midwest regional. Um, but you know one thing I one thing I'll say is that you know having spent ten years on the road and, and ten years hopping across the country managing races, look, I get it. That that's not for everybody, but I never I w- it wouldn't have been ready for two thousand for for the D triple C, let alone two thousand eighteen, without that sort of core experience.
1: Jason, I want to get this clear. You worked Arizona 1 in 2006, Virginia 10 in 2008, and we ultimately flipped both of those districts. And then then you worked the Allen West race in 2010, and then we we flipped that one back in, in 2012 with Patrick Murphy. And they, and they and they still hired you, huh?
2: Everywhere I go, they went after I leave. Everywhere <laughs> I go, they went after I leave, not while I'm there. <laughs> it was the building blocks. It was the building blocks that you set. Is
1: what did that it.
2: must be what it is. That must be what it is.
0: <laughs> so the DCCC has become a lot more prominent in recent years. Definitely some of my you know less-in-the-industry political friends would have had no idea what the DCCC was five or ten years ago. And now it's you know the name is everywhere. It's a lot more commonly heard. But it's not necessarily understood well. I think there's people who think that the DCCC control everything from every portion across the country or people who think, what does it even do? It seems sort of pointless. So how does the DCCC actually interact with congressional candidates? How do they help them? How do they move through the cycle with them?
2: It's a really good question. So look, unlike other committees, namely, you know, let's say the Democratic National Committee, we are not, you know, we we have one goal and one goal only. And it's either to win the win the majority or expand the majority. That's it. Point blank. And you know, there's sort of and and you know, for for the my department that I oversaw and much of the, frankly, most of the DCCC, there's sort of three acts when it comes to involvements with campaigns. Act one is recruitment, recruiting candidates and launching their campaigns. Act two is building their infrastructure and preparing them for engagement for the campaigns. And then act three is obviously engagement for the campaigns. For Act One, for, for somebody who, you know, as a former regional political director, that's a hell of a lot of fun. Meeting, going out and, you know, learning about districts and finding candidates, you know, meeting with local leaders, electeds or business leaders or, you know, in certain cases, you know, labor leaders is is a lot of fun and figuring out the district and trying to find the right candidate. And then after you sort of have the candidate you have your eyes on, we bring them to to Washington for a what we call a recruitment trip. And that's, you know, that's sort of meeting with other members, talking about, talking about, you know, what, what life is like as a member of Congress, um, you know, depending on who they are, potentially meeting, depending on how important of a recruit it is, potentially meeting with, you know, with leadership, although, you know, whether that's Mr. Clyburn or, or Steny Hoyer or, 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 uh, speaker Pelosi. And then, you know, and then, and then included in that act is, is launching their campaign. I think, People don't realize sort of DCCC is so, has their hands so far around. I mean, this, I think is, and I think maybe there'll be a little bit of disagreement, but (laughs) launch is sort of what what the DCCC is. It's really important for campaigns, right? You know, if you have a failure to launch a campaign, it's it's really hard to find success after that. And, you know, launch is not just getting your website ready and, and turning on your Act Blue page and sending a press release, right? Like there's a lot of groundwork that goes into this long before candidates have um, staff on the ground. So the reality is for your first leg of your campaign, C is frankly supporting your your campaign until they can find the staff to replace them to take over full time. And then, you know, after that, Act Two is sort of refining the campaign and, and make it, building out the rest of the staff, building out the rest of, you know, finding them a call time manager, finding them a potentially a pollster, finding them a television firm, finding them a campaign manager, all of that, again, trying to, and getting more, more stuff off your plate. And then lastly, engagement is when, you know, the DCCC is working with you on everything from, you know, getting your, helping you build your field plan and then helping fund your field plan through, through the state party. Same thing with, um, you know, sort of your, 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 your communications and paid communications, whether it's through DCCC helping fund that or helping, point allies in, in direction for, for non coordinated, meaning independent expenditure activities, in which case D C can all, all all things legally, of course, help you navigate that really potentially disastrous landmine of a of a situation.
1: So one thing I'm curious about is what does the D trip do in situations where you have multiple strong candidates, especially if different groups of leaders in a given district are divided on whom to recommend?
2: Look, there's ultimate time. There's a lot of times when we're, we're, we we've done multi launches in the same district, right? Especially in 2018, we did it a ton. I mean, we had. I mean, look, the reality is. I would love to take credit and say we recruited, you know, that, that I recruited everybody that that's you know was a is a star in our caucus right now. But the reality is, we had candidates literally just showed up at our door and and we're ready and we're ready to you know wanted to run wanted to run and run for office. So in that case, look, I think in two when I think of I've talked to you a lot about you know Antonio Delgado and who's now you know running for who's now the lieutenant governor nominee. In that race, and as folks remember in New York nineteen in two thousand eighteen, I think there were four or at least at least four, if not five, credible candidates, right? And look, it's in our interest to make sure we don't know at the end of the day, we don't know until we have any kind of data suggesting at that point, which is not gonna happen until much later in the cycle. It's in our interest to make sure everybody has the at least has the tools to be successful. At that point, it's up to them. But we would, you know, especially in twenty eighteen, there were tons of times where we launched Two, if not three, and sometimes even four candidates inside of a inside of a race. Um, you know that got that that that's a little bit abnormal, right? But if if there are two quality candidates in a race, it does us no good to pretend if without any real evidence that somebody is not going to win a primary and just go away. If we don't think that um you know if we think there's potential for them to be a nominee because they're going to need our trying to build a ship as it's already flowing, flying and up in the air is a hell of a lot harder than being at the ground level to start putting it together. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm also curious about is if you're an outside observer like ourselves, the hosts of this show, but also all of our listeners, and you're following the primary season and the campaign launch process, are there any signals or tells Where an outsider might know, oh, this is a campaign that probably got a launch boost from the DCCC as opposed to maybe this is a campaign that did not?
2: That's a good question. And there are some. Um, I mean, look, you can follow. I mean, the reality is, you know, following the tip sheets sort of is uh, tip sheets in the morning is obviously a place to start, right? Like, if if a candidate's getting included in the DC rags for their launch. It's hard to imagine anybody on the ground, frankly, cares enough, <laughs> and rightfully so, to have that to make sure they're included in the political roundups, right? But that's what D Triple C is going to make sure those folks are being seen by, you know, the pack the pack folks who are reading that's the, the K Street folks who are potentially going to be investors in their campaigns and things like that. But that's the one way to do it. And then, but look, there's all kind. Let me let me be clear here too. Like. I mean Rick Nolan, who I had in my region in 2016. I think he was probably the third or fourth choice of anybody in that primary up there in Minnesota eight. And you know he was a former congressman in in the 70s and took a, a brief 30 uh, year break before coming back and <laughs> attempting a comeback in 2012. Um, you know the committees and and the powers that be in 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 commit in DC all figured that Terrell Clark, who ran and, and lost unsuccessfully again, ran and lost against. Michelle Bachman and obviously a very challenging year in 2010 and ran a good campaign, but moved to new Minnesota eight to, to run in that district was going to be the nominee. And, you know, um, Rick Nolan just really made a connection with, with voters, despite not raising a lot of money and, and ended up winning that district. So that's, you know, just because D triple C is behind somebody um, doesn't always work out <laughs> and, and for, to, for them to win the primary. And in some cases, you know, they can, we are all fallible humans and, in that case, us clearly got there wrong. Rick Nolan won that seat in 2012 and then held on to it in two incredibly tough years for Democrats in, in the Iron Range in 2014 and 2016 when Donald Trump, I believe, won that district by close to 20 points in 2016 and Rick Nolan held on to beat a, 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 a self-funder uh, up there. So, look, not only can, can we be wrong, but we can be, uh, you know, sometimes being wrong works out for everybody too.
0: And I want to take us to sort of the other end of the election cycle with the, the DCCC when it has to, due to our very, very strange campaign finance laws, basically split itself in two. I think what people might not know is that there's a whole setup of the DCCC which you would be in as the political director that works directly with the campaigns and does all sorts of things that we're talking about. And then sort of a whole separate side where all this money has been raised where people, you know, if you get the campaign emails from the DCCC and then if you see the ads, if you're in a competitive district come from that other group that is very isolated due to sort of this firewall that they, that the DCCC has to put up. So talk about that process and how that sort of makes things very unusual Due to how campaign finance law is set up,
2: we've come a long way since we started um, interacting with with what we call the other side of the wall, meaning meaning the independent expenditure arm that we are not allowed to coordinate with behind closed doors. So the reality is, we can still on the coordinated side, at least at DCCC, I can't speak to to other organizations, but we um, we we set the budget on the coordinated side for a given race, and then we go and then we send it. To the independent side, meaning, let's hypothetically say, let's say the old Michigan Michigan eight, the old Michigan eight, of Slakins district, right? Coordinated side will um, will take into account what the candidate's fundraising is, what the candidate's plan to spend, what the candidate's media plan is, what the outside other groups, both allies and enemies, have placed in this district. Meaning, what HMP is going to spend here, what N Citizens United is going to spend here, versus what congressional leadership fund which is um you know mccarthy's group now mccarthy's group and nrcc here have all placed sort of publicly and you know we will we will the the executive director and the senior leadership team will sort of set the will set the budget for for that before it goes over to before the independent side is given a, a budget for which they will be spending for that district right and then on the coordinated side we are using what we call a, a red box, which is, it was invented, I believe Robbie Muck invented this thing in, in the end of, uh, it might've even been the 2010 cycle, but it, which was obviously a challenging cycle for us. But the red box is a place where, it, 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 where folks can see it's legal, it's legal communication because it's in a public place where campaigns dictate, where coordinated campaigns dictate what they would like for the independent side to do and what they would like them to communicate on. So what that will look like is, um, you know, after polling and, and lots of research is done on a coordinated campaign, a message will go into, it's on the, you know, it's on the committee, usually in most places, it's on the committee's website. Sometimes they'd be on the candidate's homepage that will say something like, voters need to see or voters need to read or voters need to hear or sometimes all three, in which case that, that's calling for, C is television, here is obviously radio, and, and read would be mail. So we you're sort of and then you and then you lay out the the layout what you what the campaign side would like to see be communicated on that side. Now look, that's up to sometimes the independent side can have more money than the coordinated side. So sometimes they'll take that information and choose to go a different direction. That's the nature of the beast, because you can't coordinate with them. That's sort of what happens. But it's a delicate. It, it is a. It is a dance that that happens um, with sort of every targeted campaign that has a, a fair amount of money and, and fair amount of interest from outside outside groups. But it's a. It's it certainly is. It certainly is complicated.
1: Shane Goldmarker of the New York Times had a really good piece investigating the red boxes, which are not always literal red boxes. Back in May, I recommend that folks read that for a better understanding of this whole concept. Uh, one thing that amused me was these days, they now also say on the go. Voters need to see XYZ on the go, meaning that it should be digital ads.
2: That's right. That's a really good point. I forgot about it. I forgot about our digital
1: friends. So let's go back to 2018, which, of course, wound up being an excellent year for House Democrats. This is when you were political director at the DCCC. And I'm curious to know if there were any moments that particularly stood out for you, Cycle, and was there any moment specifically where you thought, okay, yeah, we're going to do this thing. We're going to take back the House.
2: So, you know... The the Georgia Six, uh, both nights, there was a lot for me to take away from those ones. And I think that the the hard, the way I remember this is, and one of the lessons we took away the night after the um, runoff was, you know, we never wanted to be in in, in a race and be half pregnant. And in that, what I mean is, you know, in hindsight, I think probably our only chance to win this race was winning it in the primary, in which case for, for listeners who don't, Remember or, or recall in those races, if, you, if we had gotten to 50%, there would have been no runoff. John Ossoff would have been a United States congressman filling out the rest of that term. And ultimately, history looks vastly different than it does right now. But you know, when we after the primary, we kind of felt like we were stuck in the middle, and we spent money, and and it was really eye opening, and and in some ways, and in some ways, um, overwhelming. Was you know, the enthusiasm was clearly there and not going away, and likewise, the pressure on, on all of us uh, and all of our allies was going to be immense and was never going to wane, and we better figure it the fuck out pretty quick, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that was challenging. Um, and knowing that was ahead of us, and then fast forward about ten months, the Connor Lamb race was, and damn, that one felt really good. You know, Republicans had just passed their massive tax cut legislation, and they were using they they wanted to use that race as a sort of a raise the flag and and show that this is this is what they're doing for America, and they're going to be, and this was sort of their. This is their secret sauce for how they're going to get their mojo back and sort of be back on, get back on the horse and and keep the, and keep the, you know, keep the gavel. And Connor Lamb is a, you know, we could talk, you know, everybody else can dissect the, the, the Pennsylvania Senate primary, but I'll say this in 2018, he was a hell of a general election candidate and um, he stayed focused. He never let the national, national narrative creep into his race. They were very they were very focused on him and kept that and localized that race as much as they could, with in, in a district where where Trump won by close to twenty percentage points, and we were running against a pretty decorated you know this was a guy who was I believe he he was he was he oversaw Guantanamo Bay at one point in time. So while everybody remembers you know Connor Lamb as being as being the as being the veteran in the race, the reality was. Our opponent, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, was a highly was a much more decorated uh, veteran than than Connor Lamb was. But um, so they had they had this ta- they had taxes, and they started running the race on that. I mean, the outside group started pouring in, and they were spending the race. On, they are making this race a referendum on their tax cutting legislation. And one thing we discovered early on in that race is the way they were paying for that. And this is why you know this is why multifacets of every campaign. Are, are, you can't just have, you can't, you have to have a multifaceted campaign in order to be successful. Research found Republicans were, were, were taxing social security and Medicare to help pay, to help pay for the tax cuts that were coming in, for, for out of this bill. And in most cases, when you're running up against a legislation like that, you know, Democrats tend to not want to talk about tax cuts, right? If they have, if they have a, if they have an issue Voters tend to trust Republicans over taxes and, and not us, right? What we did in that race was and what Connor did in that race was go right back at him and made sure voters understood that these tax cuts weren't coming to you in rural Pennsylvania. And in fact, not only were they not coming to you, you were gonna be taxed more because of them. And not only did they have to lower their flagpole, you know, we sort of took the baton from them and turned it into a bludgeon for us, and they never were able to to run on that issue, run on that one what they thought was a landmark piece of legislation the rest of the cycle. And we never saw it again. So that was a huge night to remember. And then the other night that I remember that I recall really well is, um, California primary night. Now, look, I I know I'm going to sidebar here for one second. I know, you know, DCCC gets a lot of flack for getting involved in primaries and rightfully so. And sometimes, um, but like I mentioned before too, the DCCC has one goal. And it's either to keep or win the majority. And like I said, I understand when 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 people get upset why DCCC gets involved in the process, and it, it has a lot of t- And a lot of times it can blow up in their face. But the reality is, DCCC only gets involved in primaries to keep that race alive for the general. Right. So if they have tangible evidence that suggests a, a race is over, if candidate X wins, or if candidate X loses the primary meaning that race will no longer be a viable viable opportunity for us to win in November is my opinion. It's DCCC's job to get involved in that race and keep as many races on the battlefield as he possibly can heading into election year. And that's in a wave, a wave coming for us or a wave coming against us, or frankly, a non-wave cycle, right? If we are, if there's a wave for us, um, ruining things off the battlefield immediately means that wave is not going to be as high as you thought. If there's a wave coming against us and Republicans are able to Narrow that field that we narrow that field and chalk up wins early on, it's gonna make that wave that much bigger. It's C's job to keep races on the battlefield. Let's transition to California here. As folks on this pod probably know and, and remember, California has a primary system called the top two, meaning the top two candidates advance out of the primary regardless of party. Meaning sometimes you could have a Democrat and Republican, other times you can have a Republican and Republican, and a Democrat and Democrat, etc. So Following 2016, there were seven seats in California that Hillary Clinton won and were currently held by a Republican representative. We thought we had a chance to win four to five, four or five of them. And it was in California was a huge part of our strategy in order to get 24 seats to win back the House. And without, you know, getting four or five out of California, we just thought we didn't have much of a chance. So. On primary, right actually, in the end of the primary night, there were three seats that we were in some trouble of being potentially locked out of on the primary. Those were California 10, California 48, and California, I believe it was 39. It was, California 39. And in those three seats, we had to, we got involved and endorsed in the primary there to ensure. And worked with our allies uh, to ensure that we were able to, you know, preserve those seats for the fall. And we won and in California forty eight being the closest, that was the seat as folks may remember. That was the seat, that was the former Dana the, the robot Rohrab- Dana Rohrbacher seat who, you know, had sent some pretty loony things, but had also been there for, you know, forty years or something like that. And and they was running against Scott Ball, who is now running against Katie Porter in California in California seat, but Scott Ball was a former Orange County Republican chair, a former pretty powerful legislator in Sacramento. And we had two candidates in that race who were raising a fair amount of money with decent profiles, and we were sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place there. And ultimately, we ended up endorsing in that race. And, you know, there was some people that were happy, some people that were upset. That's the case, case may be. But in all three, case, in all three cases where we endorsed – you know, we dragged those folks across and I, I think we got through all three of them by like a combined probably 10,000 votes to ensure all those were still kept alive. And in the case of the Valideo seat, one of the people who was running in that race was was initially running in California 10, TJ Cox. And we conv- we didn't have a candidate to run against Valideo. And we convinced TJ Cox to move to California 21, to take on Valideo when we all, you know, we all you we know, all kind of admitted that was going to be a tough race and validate it was tough. And I'd be lying if I say, if I said personally, I thought TJ Cox was coming to Congress in 2018, but we ended up sweeping all seven of those and TJ Cox wasn't called for another three or four weeks later. But, you know, the reality is when it doesn't work, you always hear about it. And as you should, you know, we are, that's what the job is for. That's, that's why the the job should be, you know, DCCC should be where, the DCCC and all these committee jobs frankly should be after you go on the road and have managed races in million you know places all over the country and have an expertise in land that's that's why you're there and that's the kind of scrutiny you should face but the reality was that what we were able to do there and chairman Luhan doing you know sort of giving us the the space and the ability to do what needed to be done to keep those races alive if we don't do that well, there's no way now we're walking out not only with seven out of the gen- in the general election but we we'll probably only have four seats even be able to compete in the general because the other three are gone. And then lastly, the moment I frankly was very confident we were running the house, ironically enough was after a loss. It was, um, it was Danny O'Connor's race in, in Ohio 12. And Danny was a, Danny's a friend of mine. I, I talk to him all the time now um, and he ran a really good race and he was running, but he was running in a plus 12 Trump seat. And he was running against uh, a Democrat, a Republican, sorry, who the biggest crimes against Troy Balderson was that he was lazy and dumb. And like, I don't, that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily going to outrage voters. And, you know, so basically we had a, and like I said, I love Danny. Danny's a good buddy of mine, but like we had, effectively, we had a a pretty generic Democrat versus a pretty generic Republican and in a plus 12 seat, and we lost by a thousand votes. and we can, and knowing that we had 87 seats or some some number like that that were technically better seats and better opportunities for us to pick up coming in the fall i felt damn good that we are going to win the house that night
0: so looking now to to this year and given house democrats very narrow majority i think most people think republicans are probably favored to take the house at this point but obviously the d trip isn't there to sort of throw up their hands they're there to to keep the majority if they can, at all costs. So what would you be doing right now if you were the the political director still? What would you be telling these candidates to focus on as they're facing this very tough year potentially?
2: So let me take the first one on for the first question. And what would I do? Look, this is also a post, we're also in a post redistricting cycle, which makes this even more challenging for, for the political department and for the committee at large, right? The reality is there's plenty of open and challenger seats that are frankly just better opportunities for us to win than some of the incumbent seats. And keeping in mind, there's one goal of the committee, it's either to win or expand the majority. My advice would be you have to take that mantra to this as you look at the battlefield. You know, I I really hope they're ready for cut and dry ruthlessness. Yes, it's hard to cut anyone, let alone an incumbent member of Congress. That's not fun. And it's, it's very hard and there's, there are ramifications. There are, there are always ramifications that come that way. But at the end of the day, your goal is the goal and your mission is the mission. And that's to, to win the majority or keep the majority. And in order to do that, you know, you sort of have to take a blind eye and it's a blind eye to this and where your best opportunities are, you go. And that's, that's the advice I would give them. As far as candidates, look, I would tell that as far as candidates and members, don't, don't overthink this it's a challenge, but the overthinking, it's only going to, you, you, you are not, you aren't here to outthink or out strategize Republicans. Uh, you're here to win votes. And how does what you're doing show, how does what you're doing show your backbone? How does what you're doing show care for your voters? We're at an all time high right now, an all time high of lack of faith and, and trust in elected officials. And, you know, for, for candidates and members and, and member incumbent members, in order to reach out and, and and grab someone's hand you've got to show some backbone here you got to show and you got to show some empathy and you have to show that you know things are hard, but you're gonna make things they're gonna make things a little bit easier. And unless they're thinking about that and doing that every day, they're just not going about this in the right way.
1: We have been talking with Jason Bressler, who is the former political director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee about his experience at the D trip and his thoughts on twenty twenty two. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the down ballot today.
2: Guys, thanks so much for having me. Really good seeing you guys.
0: That's all from us this week. Thanks to Jason Bressler for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach us by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. And if you haven't already, please like and subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Walter Einenkel, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode.